Welcome to this episode of the VO2 Lounge podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking about intermittent fasting. So, from a very high level, intermittent fasting is a popular dietary pattern that is based upon timed periods of fasting. Uh, Two different regimes of intermittent fasting are alternate day fasting and time-restricted eating. Time-restricted eating, I think, is more the common one that people know through things like the uh, 16 8 diet, so where you fast for 16 hours, eat for 8 hours. Uh, so, current human studies suggest this diet could reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease with improvements in weight control, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and diabetes. Um, intermittent fasting is suggested to exert its effects through multiple pathways, including reduced oxidative stress, optimization of the circadian rhythms, and ketogenesis. The plan of this episode is to examine the current literature and information online available to me regarding the potential benefits of intermittent fasting and see whether they hold up or not. Before going any further, just the usual disclaimer, the content and materials featured or linked to in this podcast are for your information and education only and are not intended to address your particular personal requirements. Uh, The information does not constitute medical advice or recommendation and should not be considered as such. I'm not a medical professional and therefore not able to give medical advice. Okay, so on to the main content now. What is intermittent fasting? I think an important place to start because there are actually more than just, as I've stated earlier, one type. So the dietary strategy of intermittent fasting Um, has become a hot topic of interest online as an avenue to improve health and is often divided into three subclasses. So you have alternate day fasting, whole day fasting and time restricted eating. Uh, Alternate day fasting involves alternating between uh, eating whatever you want on feeding days and very low intake days. So you, on the very low intake days, you may have a single meal containing 25% of your daily caloric needs, or you could just do a complete fast on those days. Uh, whole day fasting typically consists of one to two days of either complete elimination of calories or severe restriction on fasting days, plus um, eating what you want on the other day. So ad libitum is what you'll always hear it defined as. It doesn't mean you eat poor food, but it's just kind of eating to hunger. And then finally, time restrictive eating, which arguably is the mildest form of intermittent fasting by a considerable amount, I would say. Um, And it consists of restricting your eating window to a certain number of hours per day, often ranging from four to eight um, with a suggested frequency of one to three meals. So that's this is the variant that often people are very familiar with because you've got the 16-8 really. That is the kind of the big thing that you'll hear people working towards as part of their intermittent fasting. Some people do do longer, but that is, for me at least, what I see the most of. Um, so many of the health-promoting effects of intermittent fasting are mediated by its effectiveness to induce weight loss on an individual. For example, when um, intermittent fasting is compared to controls with no intervention, it generally results in weight loss. Although, when compared to continuous energy restriction, it is not superior in this outcome, which is a key bit of information to bear in mind. 
Um, this suggests that intermittent fasting may be an elementary means of inducing energy deficiencies with no further dietary modifications, which may be in the short term enhanced dietary adherence because you haven't clearly got this sort of imposing effect of uh, saying I have to eat less. You just may naturally eat less because of the restriction of the hours of the day. Uh, so this proposition is supported by the observation that skipping meals for up to 12 weeks is not compensate uh, sorry not compensated for by an increase in the energy intake at subsequent meals consumed at lip so people skipping a meal then don't make up for it in the the meals afterwards so say you skip breakfast or lunch you often don't fully make up the calories in the other meals um, additionally, 18 hours compared to 12 hours fasting has demonstrated significantly lower uh, ghrelin levels, which could contribute to the reported reduced desire to eat an increase of fullness over a 24-hour period. And that is generally the fact that people often comment about how they feel full and often satiated throughout the day. Um, I think it's also important to mention that arguably when people are doing a 6-8 fast, um, in time restricted feeding as a as foregoing food for 16 hours for a human isn't really a fast to be completely honest a rat fasting for 16 hours which is often where a lot of studies can be done is almost fatal in comparison to a human who in most cases could go without food for 30 plus days really depending on your body composition most of these studies are done on rats unfortunately or observational studies that can uh, falsely attribute better health outcomes to intermittent fasting. Forgoing food for 24 hours is probably kind of the minimum amount of time needed to really be considered uh, a fast, but as we will find out later, um, it can actually be pushed out to two or three days based on some other factors and measurable uh, factors that we'll get on to shortly. So now we kind of understand what intermittent fasting is and what um, the high level sort of implications of it are. Let's get into the detail a bit further. So the effects of intermittent fasting. I think the best place to start is probably weight loss. Um, uh, and it has to be, I would say, the single biggest reason that people get into intermittent fasting, really. That's what usually is pushed out onto the internet of the benefits. Uh, other benefits are usually listed, but if you bump into someone and they follow intermittent fasting, I suppose people can say, yeah, it's because I feel uh, better slash full. But then it's like, oh, why, why do you want to do that? And people respond with, they want to lose weight. So nearly all intermittent fasting studies result in some degree of weight loss ranging from about 2.5 to 9, well, 10% basically, and associated fat mass loss. So not only weight loss, but uh, also fat loss in general. Um, so numerous studies have been um, conducted on intermittent fasting, but the intermittent fasting protocol duration and baseline characteristics of the sample population vary quite drastically. Uh, in general, once um, acclimated to the diet, people often report being more satisfied and full with their meals throughout the day, which can go a long way to improving dietary adherence. So that can be one of the main things going for it, that people, once they have acclimatized and gone through that initial shock, report effectively finding it easier to stick to the to a diet and 
not overconsume. So while weight and fat mass decrease in most studies, it is important to consider protocol adherence and dropout rates in uh, intermittent fasting intervention like studies. Some studies have found that alternate day fasting groups eat more than prescribed on fasting days and less than prescribed on uh, feast days. Uh, Based on these kind of findings, two questions come to my mind really. First, does intermittent fasting or simply the intervention itself lead to weight loss? And secondly, does the uh, alternate day fasting intervention become intermittent caloric restriction in the real world setting due to the difficulty of following the protocol itself? Um, With dropout rates as high as 40%, even with uh, statistical significance of weight loss results, the clinical significance of, of and practicality of sustaining an IF regime are quite questionable. So some of these, effectively, some of these studies, what you're getting is the final results are ignoring, well, in, in the paper itself, it will acknowledge that, okay, we had 100 people and 40 of them, for example, dropped out. That would be a 40% dropout rate. And they are then going to go forward to say, look, this is though what we found in the people who stuck to it. But the information that makes it then out onto the wide internet is just focusing on those 60 people and not the fact that this diet could be very hard to acclimatize to, but once acclimatized to, it then can have the potential to make things easier. So it's it's something to approach, not with caution, but to understand that if you struggle with it for three weeks and it's not working, it isn't that, I don't know, you're weak or something. It is that in general, this depending on the protocol you are following within intermittent fasting, it can be quite difficult Um to follow really and clearly from this alternate day fasting because of the nature of an actual prolonged fast makes it more difficult to acclimatize to than intermittent fasting where 16 hours in reality let's say you sleep eight hours so there's eight for free you eat no later than two hours before bed that means you're at 10 already let's say your wake up routine and commute to work takes about two hours you're at 12 well now suddenly you only really need to hold out for four hours which may be your lunch break or your snack break or whatever so to some extent it's much easier to wrap your head around rather than going to work knowing you can't eat for that entire work cycle come home still can't eat go to bed still only and then you are able to eat the day after Um, so i think in general this just kind of highlights that although there is weight loss there it's important to know that this isn't as easy as just flick a switch and you're 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 ready moving on from there we'll go on to protein metabolism so i think while talking about weight loss it's also important to talk about protein metabolism as not all weight loss is good weight loss in reality we are trying to achieve fat loss in 99.9 percent of cases so any lean mass is not a good thing you want to retain this this mass especially if it's for your sport but in general it doesn't really matter how overweight you are you don't want to preserve more fat than you are um, lean mass so the general effects on muscle mass 
skeletal muscle's primary role is the production of uh, contractile force, so moving your limbs. However, muscle tissue also serves as a primary site for postprandial, which means postmeal, glucose disposal, and is the largest contributor to resting energy expenditure. Muscle mass is ex- is incredibly energy um, intensive, which together um, positions it as a key um, issue for the maintenance of health. As a result of the feeding restrictions of intermittent fasting strategies ultimately have a marked influence on the availability of dietary amino acids to support muscle protein synthesis and insulin to prevent muscle protein breakdown, particularly after meals. Um, Muscle protein breakdown is sensitive to feeding indirectly via the nutrient-induced release of insulin from uh, from the pancreas. Um, i.e. from carbohydrates and amino acids. Uh, Maximal reductions in muscle protein breakdown require only modest elevations in plasma insulin concentrations, which can be stimulated with a modest carbohydrate or protein intake, something like 20 to 30 grams of like combined, I suppose, but it could just be of carbs or it could just be a protein. Um, So from this, the post- uh, absorptive state when its insulin is low is characterized by the highest rates of muscle protein breakdown to supply free amino acids which is primarily stored in skeletal muscle proteins for other tissues and as glyconeogenesis precursors. This enhancement in muscle protein breakdown is demonstrated both with an overnight fast of approximately 10 hours, where that number I had before, and prolonged 60 to 72 hour fasts. Given that intermittent fasting typically involves a relatively prolonged fasting period like 16 hours in relation to this peak muscle protein breakdown, um, or more as a primary means to reduce in, uh, systematic insulin and promote lipolysis, muscle protein breakdown would be greater over a 24-hour period with intermittent fasting as compared to a more typical meal feeding program. So like three to five meals over a 16-hour period rather than an eight-hour period. Um, with the contraction-induced anabolic stimulus of resistance exercise, there is an increase in muscle protein breakdown, although this primarily serves to provide amino acid precursors to support muscle protein synthesis in a fasted state. As a result, it is thought that resistance exercises may help retain muscle mass with intermittent fasting. So from all that, what you can kind of take away is that people get very worked up and focused on maintaining their fast. But from this, it to me, because protein has a very minimal effect on, well, fat does particularly, but protein in comparison to carbohydrates on spiking your uh, blood sugar effectively and then possibly leading to hunger down the line, it could kind of be suggested that if you are doing this fasting, carrying out uh, exercise in the gym, so lifting weights, and during the fast, maybe midway through, maybe after six hours or seven hours, maybe when you first get up, so maybe you've only been fasting for 10 hours at this point, 
taking like a 25, 30 gram uh, of protein protein shake could really maintain your fast and not really take you out of it all that much in like spike muscle protein synthesis and prevent as much of this muscle protein breakdown while you're going through especially if you're using this as a weight loss tool if you're someone that really struggles to carry out weight loss with a regular caloric restriction diet over like a 16 hour feeding window but then you really you find it much easier to do over eight hours then especially if you're using it for weight loss and you're trying to really keep this lean mass on which everyone should be doing it looks like just an injection of protein around that kind of 10 hour mark could really it may even mean that you can stretch out as a result your fast to 18 hours rather than 16 um, and have a six hour feeding window to kind of maybe if you feel like that's the correct kind of counterbalance um yeah it's kind of I think that is a really good kind of takeaway from all that. Now, you may be someone who doesn't go to the gym and saying, why is losing muscle mass when I don't have, uh, why is it such a problem? Well, the thing that is currently known is that if you're in the strongest third of the population, you are two and a half times more likely to make it to your 100th birthday bit of a weird kind of statistic and how the metrics are done but in particular if this is the case by the time you reach midlife this really kicks in if you're in your 50s and you're one of the strongest 50 year olds um, you're two and a half times more likely to make it to a hundred now i couldn't find an exact percentage of whether you're in the top two and a half percent but i'm assuming it's going to have a very similar correlation in the way that exercise does where if you're VO2 max is in the top 2.5% for your age category. You have a five-fold reduction in all-cause mortality. Um, but 3x comes from just going from sedentary to kind of above average. So you could say maybe you will be, I don't know, one and a half to two times more like uh, more likely to reach your 100th birthday if you are just above average strength. Which in the current climate of how people are, um, you know, that is a really good metric. And strength is only really second to cardiovascular health and its implications for longevity. So if you are losing weight for the purpose of longevity, really, which probably everyone is, maybe there's a element of image and how you see yourself, but... If the underlying cause is to prolong your life and your quality of life and your health span and all these kind of things, then really in the back of your mind, have this thought of preserving muscle mass and strength. Then we have the effects of glu on glucose metabolism and insulin sensitivity. This is the next uh, kind of big promise, I would say, and thing that's really in the public eye from people regarding intermittent fasting. A reduction in insulin sensitivity and improved glucose metabolism. Now, intermittent fasting in animal studies were associated with decreased serum glucose and insulin. These beneficial effects weren't anticipated. Sorry, were then, as a result, anticipated in humans. However, human trials have shown only stable or decreased fasting insulin with no change in fasting glucose. The takeaway from this is that while some animal studies suggest 
an association between intermittent fasting and insulin sensitivity, the results may not be the same for humans. This really harks back to an earlier point I made. I think the reason the benefits seen in animals are not reflected in humans is due to the length of the fast simply not being enough to move the needle for humans. Maybe two or three days are needed to see real improvements. Other studies have shown that a fasting window somewhere in the region of three days is needed to really push the body into ketosis and lower blood glucose. That said, maybe this could be reduced if an individual performs a hard workout. I mean like a VO2 max an hour with like 5 by 4 minutes at 120% of if you're a cyclist, FTP or a runner just you know we're talking like by the end of this session you are seeing close to max heart rate figures um, before you go into this fast or possibly following a ketogenic diet maybe for three four days maybe even a week depending how experienced you are with the diet before going into the fast then it may not be uh, as long as two or three days but most people are not that rigorous or doing that kind of method. It is just filtered in, in amongst their day and they're doing these fasts. And it just simply looks like that the human body is too well adapted, prepared for shortages in food and non-consistent supplies of food that really the liver um, has enough glycogen stores to buffer that blood glucose level for two to three days really depending on the individual and the, the state that you're going into this fast. Um, then we've got the effects on the cardiovascular system. So there was kind of limited research on this that I could find. Um, I did find a paper referencing um, studies looked at the Latter-day Saints religious practices. So a meta-analysis of two observational studies on a predominantly Latter-day Saint population found that those who routinely fasted were 35% less likely to develop coronary artery disease and 44% less likely to develop type 2 diabetes compared to those who followed normal eating patterns along with a lower BMIs in general, so their lower body mass index. Uh, this population had a lower prevalence of smoking, however, which may confound the association between fasting and the clinical outcomes. I've included this as I think the waters tend to be quite murky when it comes to intermittent fasting studies and nothing ever seems too clear-cut, especially when it comes to the observational work. Um, most of the benefits of the cardiac system likely stem from improved diets along with the implementation of fasting itself. Which I think is just the fact that people often who are committing to some dietary intervention, regardless of what it is, especially kind of fasting, tend to be a bit more conscious about what they're consuming anyway. So if you're just trying to compare a population of two different people who follow, one follows some kind of dietary pattern and the other just eats food, you're going to find these kind of confounding factors within the re the results which makes it far harder to use this kind of evidence it, it can steer you in a direction to create a study i feel like but taking it as gospel pun the pun <laughs> um is i think just not necessarily the kind of right direction to start moving in something 
that did crop up that I hadn't really seen written anywhere, which I thought was quite a big thing, is ageing and cognition. So animal models provide uh, preliminary evidence that um, caloric restriction and intermittent fasting may delay aging. Evidence included improves biomarkers, uh, so includes improved biomarkers, reduced oxidative stress, and preserved memory. Oxidative stress is an imbalance between the production of reactive oxygen species, also written as ROS, and antioxidant defenses. Both caloric restriction and alternate day fasting diets reduced age-related deficiencies in, cogn- uh, in cognitive and motor function in animal models. Uh, the combination of cal- caloric restriction and intermittent fasting has been found to promote longevity and increase resistance to age-related diseases in rodents and monkeys. While animal models have provided some promising results, there is a relatively small amount of human studies um, prohibits the extrapolation of these effects onto humans which is a kind of a common trend of this diet and i think it's a common trend of a lot of early stage research but i think it means when people make sweeping claims and you just have to kind of think about it thoroughly um, so most studies ass- assessing intermittent fasting and aging are conducted on animals that I've already said and it makes it just hard in general to extrapolate these results. Most of the effects on aging and cognition could be um, a result of the reduced chronic elevation of blood glucose. Now that I think is the kind of intuitive way of looking at it. I think that if you have a dietary intervention that limits the number of spikes you're going to have in your day and kind of condenses them I suppose and may result in just better control of blood glucose in general um, because of various factors then that would make sense because a lot of detriment happens in general to in relation to aging and the brain and development of cancers in general so the reduced level of blood glucose at least in the spikes maybe not resting but in the spikes that you're seeing is going to then result likely in um, improved aging cognition now another factor that came up recently um, and it came to light to me in the past few days really while researching this topic is the reported improvements in sleep due to the maintenance of the circadian rhythm as a result of intermittent fasting itself so fasting regimes that exclude or dramatically reduce energy intake in the evening and exclude energy intake during the night time help synchronize food ingestion with the times of optimal postprandial hormonal response. Effectively, eating food when your body is best coped for dealing with it and allowing time for digestion to run its course before bedtime is effectively optimal. As circadian rhythm synchronizes, it is hypothesized that uh, that fasting and time-restricted feeding regimes that actively impose a diurnal rhythm of food intake aligned with the 24-hour light diet cycle lead to improved oscillations in the circadian clock gene expression, the reprogramming of molecular mechanisms of energy metabolism, and improved body weight regulation. Now my takeaway from this is that sleep is incredibly important, and food intake has the ability to disturb that sleep. I think the main takeaway from that is that to stop eating a few hours, let's say two or three before bed, 
but it doesn't look like when you start eating in the day or how long matters in relation to sleep. So it doesn't matter if you eat for 16 hours of the day or over the course of 16 hours versus 8 it doesn't look like that specifically has an effect or skipping breakfast, should I say, any of these things has an effect on sleep, more the content of what you're eating and how far away that food and what food it is, is from your bedtime will have the greatest effect. And then likely, I imagine if you did a study where you had someone intermittent fasting, but those eight hours of eating resulted in the final meal being consumed one hour before bed, versus just eating as and when over the course of the day but the final meal was three to four hours before bed you would likely see some of these kind of uh, benefits being reduced in the intermittent fasting group because it doesn't look like it is a result of the fast itself and more a result of the fact that you're just simply allowing your body to understand that it's time to go to bed. So the gut microbiome is something that is discussed more and more frequently, I would say now. Um, And the idea generally is that as a result of fasting, the gut microbiome will be improved with an increased number of bacteria and their variety. Uh, For me, the issue is that the research on how intermittent fasting impacts the human microbiome is scarce. With the papers available, few in number and small in scale often. Uh, But even more, the results can vary drastically between studies on this. The trend, however, does seem to be that more of a shift is seen with longer fasts, such as multi-day fasts. But more importantly, the dietary composition has more power to shift this than eating patterns themselves. So wrapping this all up, despite impressive results in rodent models to date, well-designed clinical trials result to, um, to determine the effectiveness of the temporarily restricted food intake without caloric restriction or change in diet in obese subjects with metabolic disturbances are limited and inconsistent. I think from all this, it's important to assess what your goals are in particular. If all you want to do is lose weight, then it could be a method of going about it, given its somewhat reported ease of uh, adhering to the diet. However, it does look like that the method of weight, uh, of which weight loss is achieved is through caloric restriction and following a caloric restriction diet with a wider feeding window will allow for better control of muscle protein synthesis and therefore muscle protein breakdown. I think from reading articles surrounding diets online, it's clear that people often get tunnel vision when it comes to dieting and fail to look at the whole picture. Yes, maybe there is some evidence to support improved fat metabolism in people following time-restricted feeding, but better results can be seen in people getting adequate exercise. So if you take anything away from this episode, it's that when considering a dietary intervention it's important to look at the whole picture now it did come across james clear's article on this when stumbling around the internet and he made a suggestion that intermittent fasting makes your day simpler if this is the case for you and it allows you to eat properly then by all means do it but i think the main takeaway from intermittent fasting is its potential to 
limit muscle protein synthesis and how long and how often the leucine effect is kind of stimulated for um, and how long muscle protein breakdown is going to be stimulated and how long it's going to peak for. So maybe take a sort of dialed back approach. If you are someone who say your your 20% reduction in calories, whatever your number is, is 1,800. If you are someone who is able to stick to that number, that target, and consistently lose weight better when following a time-restricted feeding or any form of intermittent fasting diet versus just caloric restriction on its own, then by all means take up intermittent fasting. But have in the back of your mind that you still want to preserve muscle mass or gain muscle depending on how the situation is and so maybe injecting maybe 30 40 however many grams of protein particularly maybe at least 30 maybe when you wake up an hour after you wake up to kind of dampen down the effects of muscle protein breakdown and stimulate muscle protein synthesis and continue to preserve that lean muscle mass and maybe try avoid intermittent fasting for day-to-day non-caloric restrictive periods but if it truly turns out that it's the only way you find you can follow a diet then yeah the protein intake in the morning looks to be a key takeaway for me from this now this was a shorter episode by a little bit than usual but i thought in general a lot of the dietary information on intermittent fasting is a lot of it observational and kind of hard to really knuckle down and pinpoint the validity of certain results. So I thought I would go over what is usually suggested in the media and just on the internet in general and what has validity and what may not, why people struggle to stick to the diet and I think we've we've highlighted some maybe small issues and um, ways of remedying them. But thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want more content like this, there are plenty of other previous episodes to check out. Before you do, why not follow the podcast and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts from, or even better, share it with a friend. That's kind of the best way to get the podcast out there. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, I can be contacted at the vo 2 lounge at gmail.com. And with that, I will see you in the next one.